When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Raven was a surprise addition of the lineup. He was dealing with a hamstring injury. And Henry back into the game. Henry over the 200-yard mark as he crosses the 35 to the 40, picks up 20 more. By no one's demand, but our own from our home office here in cloudy, cold, quarantined Elizabeth Park. Still scenic, though. Nashville, Tennessee. It is the 615 Sessions podcast powered by Two Rivers Ford and brought to you, as always, by A to Z Sports and A to Z Sports Nashville.com. Hello, friends. Back for another week of podcasting. This is Buck Rising, of course. Here with you, we have a fun one for you today. Teresa Walker, John Burton, the Associated Press, News Channel 5, respectively. They were on the show a big weekend for rebounding in Tennessee football, both college and professional. Vanderbilt hired Clark Lee after we finished recording the podcast. And we have a good conversation with Chris Fair, who owns the Listening Room Cafe in downtown Nashville. That's going to be in lieu of five good minutes on a Tuesday. Before we get to all of the great conversations and content ahead, though, i got to remind you about what's going on at Two Rivers Ford right now and how everybody's trying to decompress, how everybody's trying to wind down. We're all trying to take a step back and get through what remains of 2020. Two Rivers Ford, they've been thrilled to be able to stay open and to help serve and service the local community here in Nashville throughout the entire course of the pandemic. And they've got a lot of great stuff to look forward to, just like we all do in 2021. They've got a lot of great things coming in the new year. The new Bronco Sport, it's already arrived for those who have pre-ordered them. And the Bronco, the regular Bronco, it's right behind it. Two Rivers Ford, it's your Ford Bronco headquarters. You can call Matthew or Jay over there, and they'll walk you through all things Ford Bronco. The new 2021 F-150, it's out. I've got to say, I love it. They've designed it for people like me. Sometimes I need to take a nap in the parking lot between Titans practice, podcast, the primetime show, radio, whatever it is that I'm doing. The Ford F-150, it's literally designed with a comfortable nap space in it. It's a perfect vehicle for people like me who are constantly on the go. The new Mach-E all-electric Mustang has arrived. It goes from 0 to 60 in 3.5. Damn, that is fast. Ford literally right now is making the best vehicles they've ever made. And Two Rivers Ford is the only place that you can go to get one here in Middle Tennessee. The non-commissioned sales staff, they will hook you up as they always do and make sure that you have no pressure involved in your car shopping or car buying experience 
Two Rivers Ford. It's powered by Ford, but you know it's driven by the people. Let's get to Teresa and JB. Back here, 615 Sessions podcast on the GetBeast.com Zoom line. A couple of old friends, John Burton from News Channel 5 and Teresa Walker, award-winning journalist for the Associated Press. Hello, friends. Hello, Buck. How are Lisa, you? Buck? How do you feel about him calling us old? <laughs> I was going to get to that. Yeah, old friends. Uh, you know, I guess he's feeling frisky that uh, he's, you know, he, he's counting himself as old enough to have old friends. Now, I, I, I'm not taking that as us being old because no. Right. Well, here's the thing about here's the thing about getting older and having birthdays. Never stop having them. Never stop getting older. So that means you're still alive. So I'll Amen. take it. Great to be on with you, Buck. Listen, I uh, it was no it was no shot at the two of you, okay? It's just been a lot. We've been around each other enough. Like I basically I have basically grown up in and amongst my Titans media mem- uh, media member friends. So I consider you guys at this point five years. We're into this thing. We're old friends at this point. Has it been five years? Boy, it's it's yeah. it's flown by. It feels longer than that, though, that you've been around, Buck. I mean, you know. No. And that's a good thing. It is. It's nice to have you in our mix of of media. You you bring a certain attitude uh, that that, uh, keeps it spicy, interesting. You do do a great job. You add a little bit of swag, a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of that flavor. We like it. Us old timers like me and T, we like it. (laughs) Now you're calling me old, JB. (laughs) What is it? How the tables have turned. Now the now the focus is on John Burton. This podcast uh, is off to a great start, isn't it? <laughs> they they always seem to go this way, John. So this is just this is par for the course. But I'm sure we'll get through all of these things in due time. Look at Teresa making a face like she wants to smack me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just trying to. Uh, you know, there's so many things I could say, and I'm choosing not to because you're a professional, Teresa. We have a lot to discuss with our friends, the Tennessee Titans. They have now clinched five straight winning seasons, three such under Mike Frabel as head coach. Derrick Henry was a badass. Teresa Walker very much enjoyed me getting dragged across the internet yesterday as uh, Derrick Henry was running for 200 yards and two touchdowns. He now sits atop a list with uh, uh, with uh, Jim Brown, with LaDainian Tomlinson, and with Barry Sanders. So we will discuss that at great length. In fact, we'll start with it now because, Teresa, um, I think you and Joe Rex Road, I'm not going to defend uh, what I put out there. I'm going to let you set the scene for the people. I will say, though, that I think I was taken out of context, and I think that yesterday was an easy opportunity to pile on me because for the people who don't know, I put out, it was either on Thursday or Wednesday, I can't remember, the Jags, every time for, for, for the common people, for the layman, uh, every time the Titans head into a week, we get, a, we get two pieces of propaganda, one from, the, from, one from the Titans and one from the team that they're playing. They come in a media release packet. And so in the Jags propaganda machine, there was a comparison between James Robinson, their rookie undrafted, free agent running back, and Derrick Henry, because they have both been statistically good this season. So I took the screenshot, I put it out there, I said running backs are not that much different, no matter how much of, how, how big a deal people want to make out of Derrick Henry, and all of the great things that Derrick Henry has done, 
even though I believe him to be exceptional. And people, of course, the internet has no context, has no, uh, has no, uh, what do you want to call it? No, uh, they just, they're not there for the conversation. They just feel like yeah. somebody's attacking their favorite player and they want right. to take you down. And maybe I did deserve to be taken down a little bit, but Teresa, you helped pile on. You were the voice of the people. You were leading the, leading the angry mob with pitchforks and torch in hand. Well, absolutely. And here's the thing. I make the argument, it's become in vogue over the last decade to say that running backs aren't worth anything. You can get another new one in the draft. You know, the big deal to Todd Gurley was kind of the last one. And people are like, oh, see his knees. Don't do that. It's horrible. It's a waste of money. Just get the next Joe Schmo coming out in the draft. And my argument is that, you know, guess what? The the greats are few and far between. But when you look at what Derrick Henry is doing and and has the possibility of doing this season, you know, he's got a chance, the whole 2,000 yard talk, I'll talk, I'll get excited about that when he gets within, you know, to 1,800. But he has a chance to get, to be the first guy to repeat as rushing champ. Uh, first time, you know, it hadn't been done since LaDainian Tomlinson did it in 0607. And when you look back through history, you know, the name, it's been done a few times, but by some of the same guys, uh, Adrian Peterson, uh, Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders just took turns dominating the 90s. Uh, then there was O.J. Simpson in the 70s. Earl Campbell did it three straight years in the late 70s. But that that's an elite group of people. And what Derrick Henry is doing is he's absolutely putting himself in that conversation. Yesterday, 200 yards, two touchdowns, uh, fourth such game in his career, you know, to put him out of a tie with, uh, you know, Jim Brown and those guys. That's elite company. And there is a value to that. So, yeah, as soon as I saw that NFL thing, I, you know, that's when I tweeted out, you know, this is why you pay some of these guys. And that was absolutely a slap at you because it ain't you and the others who want to downgrade the running back because the, the great ones are hard to find. And, you know, let's face it, the Titans, we, we weren't sure if they'd ever figure out how to do it, right? You know, early, you know, he was behind DeMarco Murray to start his career. And then it was like, you know, just give him the ball, let him work. And it's, it took the Titans time to figure out what they had in Derrick Henry. So pay the man and quit pinching pennies like it's your money and coming out of your wallet. JB, you've seen plenty of wrestling matches in your day. Referee this one. <laughs> Well, you know what? T makes a lot of good points because, you know, to me, the running back position is my favorite position in all sports. I used to be a running back, and when I played rugby all those years, the position I played was kind of like a running back. So it always comes down to production and durability, and Derrick Henry has provided both, right? I mean, look, as a New York Giants fan, you know, we spent the second pick overall on a running back, and as great a uh, player as Saquon Barkley is – and as great a person as he is, it really hasn't worked out because he's been hurt the last two years. Derrick Henry has shown the durability. He gets a lot of carries. So when the production and the durability is there, then, yes, you are, it is worth taking up a chunk of your payroll, a chunk of your salary cap uh, to pay this guy. I thought the Titans did the right thing paying this guy in the offseason because dude's an alien. I mean, knock on wood, he's not been seriously injured. He's, you know, he's been nicked up here and there. But the way this guy conditions himself, the way he, you know, stays focused during games, you never see him take a playoff. You know, you can't argue with the production, and obviously you can't argue with the durability. 
Um, you know, by and large, you usually you don't in these days in the NFL, you don't normally, you know, de- devote a lot of your salary cap to a running back. But in this case, you look at fit for the team, fit for the style of offense you want to run with Arthur Smith and what they like to do with the Titans. It's a perfect fit. And, you know, A, he's worth every penny. And B, my, my philosophy has always been you are worth whatever someone is willing to pay you. So I agree with Teresa Walker on that. Listen, and, and I, just, go ahead, Teresa. I'm sorry. And just to follow up, uh, Derrick Henry brings an intangible that you can't measure. You know, the guy is always working. He's either in the sand pit or he's catching balls. The guy, he might not be in a drill. He's working. You see him working in the offseason. He sets a tone for that locker room and a standard that has to be met by his teammates simply because if he's working that hard, I had better. And he's a humble team first guy as well. And that, you know, that's a rarity for big stars in, in today's sports. You see – yeah, I love the NBA as much as the, as the next guy, but as I get older, these guys like Kyrie Irving and these guys, they just drive me nuts. When you have a guy like Derrick Henry, who the first thing out of his mouth is, like you said, Teresa, I don't care about stats. I want to win. I'm just happy to be on this team. I'm happy to be with these teammates. I don't take it as jock speak with Derrick Henry. I really think that's just how he is in real life. Buck? Yeah, Coach, understanding you've seen a lot of impressive Derek performances and that you, you can't rest on any kind of laurels, do you get to appreciate it all in real time when he has um, a big performance like this or, or are you just caught up in, in what's going on with the game? I appreciate his attitude. I appreciate um, his leadership, his willingness to to do what's best for the team. You know, he's, he's, he cares a lot about everybody, coaches, players. Um, he, he wants to try to please everybody. And... Um, you know, he puts himself in a position each and every week to, to be ready to, to carry that load and um, couldn't be happier for, for anybody's success. I uh, love my teammates. You know, uh, you know, appreciate those guys every day for what they do. You know, the unselfishness that they have, you know, for me, you know, I'm truly blessed to have the teammates and the team that I have. Um, Coach Ray was just trying to, you know, look out for me. You know, just so, you know, I didn't take no extra shots. Body you know, feels good. So, you know, just love my teammates. God, I wish he was less humble. I Just for the sake of a quote. Oh, I mean, he's so, he's so phenomenal. Yeah, from our standpoint, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But, you know, I'm sure the fans, you know, from the fans' standpoint, I mean, you, you could, you know, you couldn't ask for a better, you know, he's the most, he's, he is by far the most popular professional athlete in our city. I know a lot of people love Roman Yossi and some of the Preds and Pekka and all that. He is hands down the most popular athlete in our city, but he's probably the most humble of any star athlete that we have, uh, in, you know, in Nashville. It, it infuriates me. And listen to me, every one of you people listening to this podcast, I love you all very much. You are my day ones. You are my P ones. But damn you all. I don't care what you want to but with humility in your, in your superstars. I want a good quote. I want the big right. man to brag on himself. <laughs> Every once in a while, just so I have something to write every Thursday when he gets up in front of the media and he says nothing drives me insane. It's a little bit better because we're not in the locker room, Uh, you know, but there were some days where I would walk out of there and and Derek, as we all know, usually talks on Thursdays and I would come out of there and be like, what am I going to use from this guy? Because like you said, the fans want to hear from this guy because of his popularity. So I, I agree with you a little bit there. It'd be nice to have a little bit more swag to him. 
Mary's making us work harder too, because we have to think hard to try to come up with a question, to try to crack open that, you know, the Henry nut, so to speak, to get mm -hmm. him to say something good. If you can make him laugh or smile and, and, and loosen him up, you, we've got a chance of getting a quote, but those are few and far between. That's why I got to do, that's why I got to do uh, dumb stuff and rattle the cage every once in a while. That's <laughs> Teresa. It's got to poke people a little bit. Maybe I get something out of it, but listen to me. It was never about Derrick Henry and James Robinson. It's about the position for me. Because ultimately, if I and, – and listen, I, I took the L on, on not wanting to give a running back a second contract. I didn't care who he was. Derrick Henry, all of your points here have been well taken, okay? I think it's good for the team. I think that who they are, it fits them perfectly. I think that he has been absolutely exceptional. And as JB said, he has been reliable. He has been durable. I mean, you, you said uh, bumps and, and nicks here and there. It's really not even that. Like, I think as far as – as long as I've been here, he has had that one game against New Orleans where they sat him intentionally because it was a game that – the rare game that literally means nothing for your playoff chances. And he was dealing with some hamstring stuff, and they took it easy on him. Outside of that, he has been able to go for every game in the last four years. And for me, it's also about how much how much the team feeds off of who they are, because it's all predicated on him. And his refusal to let it be predicated on him because he's team first, as much as I hate it for the purposes of a quote. It's a lovely thing if you're trying to build a football team. It does gas bags and vultures like me nothing. It does me nothing to have them be selfless the way that Derrick Henry is. It's fine. But what I will say to you is if he is the one that I'm wrong about, I, I'll live, right? Because what JB is saying – with Saquon Barkley, people were and, – and listen, Dave Gettleman, everybody was calling Dave Gettleman an idiot for a very, very long time, and the Giants look like they seem to have some competency about him, which, again, makes me sad because Dave Gettleman is fun to make fun of. But uh, on the whole, the running back experiment, whether it be Zeke and paying him $15 million a year, whether it be McCaffrey and the way that he's just physically fallen apart because his contract and his, and his talent requires that he receive – the bulk of the workload, like Derrick Henry, nobody holds up the way that Derrick does because he's a freaking machine. He's an alien, like JB said. On the whole, though, when I take it down, when I take it down to the idea of value and what Derrick Henry represents in terms of value, the thing that I was propping up more than anything, rushing yards don't mean anything to me. It's touchdowns and it's durability. And he scores. Of course, he is worth his weight in gold and however many millions uh, that they paid him. And by the way, the contract was great. Like, even I couldn't be pissed about the contract that they got him on <laughs> because it looks so much better compared to Zeke and McCaffrey and Kamara. Ultimately, though, Teresa, and I'll let you – I'll, I'll shut up after this. It's, it's how often can you keep him on the field? Derrick Henry doesn't miss games. And so that kind of balances, that, balances it out a little bit. But when you look at a guy like James Robinson and a guy like Derrick Henry and all things being equal, how often Derrick Henry has to come off the field, it's not just about the rushing totals. It's not just about 200-plus yard games. It's about how often can you use him. Derrick Henry, Henry's availability negates a lot of those points that even, even anti-running back zealots like me would make about what he is and what the position is commensurate to what you can get in an undrafted rookie free agent like James Robinson. Well, it is your podcast, but uh, James Robinson, let, it's fool's gold for the moment. He's on a team that has won one game 
and is one in 12 right now. So uh, Derrick Henry, what he is doing and has done is for a team that is now had five straight winning seasons. He's doing it as the focus of an offense, the focus of defensive coordinators. I mean, Doug Marone said yesterday they were throwing everybody everybody in the box that they could, and he still had 170 by halftime. So he is taking what defenses are throwing at him. He is the key to this offense, the durability factor. And, you know, so that those all pile onto it. And then you have the team-friendly contract. I mean, you know, John Robinson wrote about as good a contract as you could. His contract, he got the extension, but it is not in the category of, of Zeke Elliott or Todd Gurley. This was a smart investment by the Titans. And this was Derrick Henry, again, that humble dude who told us repeatedly last year his contract didn't matter. He was all about football. Well, he kind of made that clear with the contract he accepted. I mean, you know, you could not write a more. I mean, the dude deserves more money when you look at his value this year. But he's getting paid, and and that's not a part of it anymore. So it's smart deal, smart deal all around. So, and again, you're comparing not just apples and oranges. You're comparing a, you know, a really nice Yugo that doesn't have any bumps on it and a James Robinson to, uh, let's just, you know, shoot, Tony Dungy was calling him a truck, you know, uh, call him a tank. You know, Tractor Cito, he's outperforming that. I mean, he's like one of those big John Deers who just mows you over, but oh yeah, has a little Hemi in there stuck in there and a turbo boost and he can just let go when he wants to. So there you go. He's the damn Batmobile, JB. I hate him. He, uh, yeah, that was a lot of great metaphors there by Teresa Walker. She's not a Hall of Famer for, for no reason. It's like but, she's a writer. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. All those, all those creative ideas go through uh, her head. But, yeah, I mean, listen, you look around the league, you look at the Rams, like you said, they signed Gurley to that big deal and realized uh, this isn't working. we got to let him go. Melvin Gordon Jr., um, you know, shipped out of uh, L.A. with the Chargers to the Broncos. And like I said, you know, the, the Giants are going to have a big decision to make in a couple of years with Saquon coming off a major injury. It's like, all right, do we want to pay this guy? Or I have Wayne Gallman already for pennies on the dollar. And this guy was a part-time running back at Clemson, but he's been pretty good for us. So I think every situation dictates what you do, right? And you're right. The running back position has been devalued. And we've seen guys come out of nowhere. I mean, geez, Terrell – uh, Davis was a six-round pick and, and this type of thing. But when you have the value financially and the production and the durability that I spoke of, it's just a good fit. And I think Derek was smart enough to realize, you know what? I may not get as much money that I would on the open market if I waited. But guess what? I'm making a good, I'm making a good penny, number one. Number two – we're in a world, you know, we're in a global pandemic. Who knows what the future holds? I better cash in now. And number three, wherever I go next, you know, Taylor Lewan's not walking through that door when he's healthy, and Roger Saffold's not walking through that door, and Ben Jones, and and you know, and et cetera, et cetera. I've got a good scheme that fits my skills. I have a good offensive line to run behind. You know, the only caveat with Derrick Henry is if the Titans get behind by a couple of more scores. Usually that's when you find Derrick Henry on the bench because he can't really help you a whole lot in pass pro and his hands are getting better, but still probably average at best. So, you know, as long as you feed the big man and you get a lead and you can impose your will on the opposite team, Derrick Henry is about as valuable as any player you'll find in the National Football League. 
the way that I kind of look at them is like this, because you guys, and it's, again, it's not to, uh, it's not to age either of you, but it's just, it's how long I've been working in, in the NFL. Yep. The only running back that I've seen in four years covering the Tennessee Titans is Derrick Henry, like a little bit of DeMarco Murray. Uh, my first year was Malarkey's last year, so that was when DeMarco Murray's body was starting to fall apart. And I was in Nashville watching that, uh, that first year that he was here where Derrick Henry – or when he was the primary running back um, prior to Derrick's rookie year. But Derrick's rookie year was my first year as a Tennessee Titans reporter. And so, like, he's the only running back that I know as – or at least that I've covered – full-time and associate with, okay, this is what running backs are supposed to look like. And I've seen, we all have, we've seen how he's evolved from, you know, frustrated because he's starting behind or he's playing behind a guy that was that who arguably should have been either benched or relegated to a different role because his body was failing him because of the physicality of that position where he was getting those opportunities under Mike Vrabel. And up until the Patriots game, where Fluellen went down with a knee injury, he was getting snaps behind him. And ultimately to this thing that we see before us now, where he's just, he's a, he's a total game changer. He is the equalizer. And more, more than that, he is the thing that determines their success on a game-to-game basis. But like with me, and I, I kind of came to this realization yesterday, because, you know, I try, I try to be a little bit self-aware, even, even, if, I, uh, even if ego uh, dictates that I do otherwise. When I'm in the midst of getting dragged across the internet, which gave Teresa Walker great enjoyment. Um, I enjoyed I, it. I know. It's you're just so petty. To you. Just so petty. I can't do it. it. Because of the pandemic, Buck, I can't pick on you in the workroom. So I have to go to Twitter to do it. I'm sorry. It's more public, but I'm trying not to do as much. Burton, she literally texted me on Thursday oh. and said, I forgot how much I enjoy picking on you. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> Teresa Walker is my Twitter mom. I got duped draft weekend. I saw a false tweet that said the Giants had traded for Yannick Ngakwe, and I celebrated and I retweeted it. And she immediately was like, this is a fake account. This is not a real story. You're an idiot. So <laughs> Teresa Walker is my Twitter mom, and now she's your Twitter mom too, Bob. I've been my Twitter mom. It's absolutely untenable, <laughs> even though it is necessary. Anyway. Ego aside, like I'm trying to sit back and reevaluate, okay, why am, I, why am I so off about this? Or why am I being blinded to what I'm watching on a regular basis? And then immediately the comparison to me, and not just because they're exceptional at what they do, and not just because LeBron tagged Derrick Henry in an Instagram story and is clearly rooting for uh, Derrick Henry's success because they're both named King at this point. But with LeBron, across 20 years of watching basketball almost, this guy has been so spectacular for the entire uh, the entirety of his career that the feats that he accomplishes, the performances that he puts on, you almost you take them for granted because you've seen him do it so many times and so consistently over the course of his career. And in a much smaller sample size, that's kind of what I think I'm doing with Derrick Henry, where he's the only running back that I've watched for the team that I cover on a game-by-game basis and through four years of doing this. So when Derrick Henry does have 200-yard performances, 
Like, yeah, he's had four of them. So what? I've seen all four. Well, it's not that impressive. I don't know. Who the hell is Barry Sanders? Like, I don't know any of these guys. I haven't seen Right. And and see, that's the thing, Buck. You know, having grown up, and Teresa can attest to this, having grown up watching, you know, uh, shoot, I was a little kid when O.J. Simpson was, was, you know, growing up in upstate New York. O.J. Simpson was the man. And then, you know, later on seeing guys like Herschel Walker and Bo Jackson and you know, getting to cover guys like uh, Thurman Thomas when I was in Buffalo and Jerome Bettis when I was in Pittsburgh. You know, when you have a stud running back that everybody feeds off of, it not only just energizes the team, it energizes the whole town. I cannot begin to tell you how popular Jerome Bettis was in Pittsburgh. He was beloved. That man was a god because he was a lovable guy, kind of the chubby. He was kind of like the chubby kid on the playground that got the ball and nobody could tackle and he, he was very gregarious and stuff, but he was no—he was without a question the leader of the team and the energizer bunny of those Steeler teams. And I think Derek, in his own way, because he's not as—he's not as gregarious, obviously, as JB was. You know, it's the same way. And you see how it's energized this team. You see how it's energized this city. Law, you know, big picture, he's probably the exception that proves the rule. But you know, like I said, when you have someone like him that provides all the intangibles he does both on and off the field and in the locker room, you know, some, some, sometimes it's worth the investment. Most times you invest big money in a running back in the NFL, you get burned. Now back in our day, you know, T and I can tell you the nineties were all about, you needed a stud running back before you needed a good quarterback because you had to run the football. It's a different game. Now you throw the ball, but still those, those basic principles, you can run the football, play good defense, uh, you could win a lot of games and compete for championships in this league, and a guy like Derrick Henry helps you do that. See, Buck's problem is recency bias because, again, he, that's right. who he's seen. We, I, I saw Earl Campbell you know, lead the NFL in rushing three straight seasons at yep. the end of the 70s and win an NFL MVP as a running back. Uh, yep. You know, watched Emmett and uh, – Walter Payton, I mean, you know. Barry Sanders. I mean, you know, when you've, you've – you know, we've seen them. You know, you darn kids, you know, go on YouTube. Even my son has seen some of those games. Eddie George, you know, I mean, shoot, fans mm-hmm. in that stadium were chanting Eddie, Eddie, yep. well before they ever started doing Henry, Henry. So, right. uh, you Eddie know, George so- hasn't bought a dinner in Nashville in about 15 years. He hasn't had to pay for dinner in Nashville in about 15 years. Because people remember him putting together great performances. So, uh, you know, so yes, we, we can judge that. That's why we can see greatness when we, and recognize it when we see it, Buck. You know, you poor kid, you just hadn't seen enough. Hey, you just got to get older, a little bit more seasoning. You'll, you'll, you'll get there, man. You'll get there. You're on your way. Listen to me, both of you. Uh, the, the pandemic has aged me 15 years, I feel like. I, I, I can I, see I... it on your face there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> Disrespect. In what? Wa- Listen, I understand that Uber Eats is a is a function of the pandemic, and that maybe my face looks a little rounder, and maybe I look a little more tired because I'm sitting in here all day. I'm pissed. I'm legitimately angry now, Teresa. What the but hell? I was not fat shaming you, Buck. I was just. <laughs> oh my god! Hang I on mean, a my my eyes are a little more puffy. My face is round. I'm I'm legitimately upset. I'm flustered. I don't. I, I, I want to bring this podcast to a screeching halt. <laughs> My God. <laughs> you were the one talking about how this pandemic has aged you. I oh just really know. You don't got to point it out to people watching this on YouTube, Teresa. 
There are people that this is a this is a simulcast product. <laughs> now looking at the bags under my eyes. It's like, wow. oh my god, he does look. Ooh. What the hell happened to him? Hey, you can uh, only see me from the shoulders up. I'm, you know, I'm not. Trust me, I'm not fat shaming in a pandemic. Just <laughs> wearing sweatpants for God's sake. Oh, I mean, listen. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> anyway. I don't even know how to transition out of that. I'm legitimately. Meanwhile, back on the uh, playoff chase. <laughs> playoff chase. Playoff chase my ass. Get out of here, Teresa. Uh, AJ Brown, not AJ. Uh, the game only. Uh, the game only improving from game to game. He is still very young in his career. Maybe, hopefully, he will not age as quickly as apparently I have. Uh, but AJ Brown. Yesterday, with a spectacular one-handed grab, yesterday as we taped this podcast, obviously the people hear it on Tuesday, but spectacular one-handed grab on the flea flicker. He comes out wearing the AJ or the uh, Julio Jones jersey and warm-ups because we've documented many times since he has been a Tennessee Titan, his love for AJ Brown. That's why he wears the number 11, and he just wants to kind of personify greatness, and that's who he has said consistently to us that he's chasing. Yeah, today Pro Football Focus put out a uh, a graphic of one of their uh, one of their analysts, one of the people that grades every snap. And whatever you think of Pro Football Focus, they do they are something that people gravitate to, regardless of how exactly the grades are determined. But the the graphic said AJ Brown is Terrell Owens, and AJ Brown quotes quote tweets this and says AJ Brown is AJ Brown, which I respect, but also. I, again, because I lack context, apparently in everything but my physical features, uh, <laughs> I did not. I do not remember <laughs> Terrell Owens as a player. So, if the two of you, in your wisdom, I will not age you again, as Teresa has done to me. AJ Brown and Terrell Owens, Teresa, fair comparison or not? Well. If the fact that Terrell Owens is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame is a nice comparison, and I covered his uh, very unique inductions uh, acceptance in Chattanooga a couple years ago, but CBS tweeted out some stats. First 27 career games. Uh, A.J. Brown has more receptions, has over 700 more yards, uh, seven more touchdown catches than Terrell Owens had through their first 27 career games. So I think A.J. Brown's got a point. Uh, A.J. Brown is A.J. Brown. And I think it was Rodney Harrison on the Sunday night football pregame talking that uh, he might be the best receiver in the NFL. Now, what he doesn't have are the, you know, the pelts on the wall, so to speak. You know, he doesn't have uh, the, the massive playoff win, you know, and let's face it, you know, this team is still yet to win a division title. You know, if they can start putting some of those things together and he keeps playing the way he's playing and cleans up some of the drops that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, he absolutely has a chance to be up there with the Julio Jones, uh, all the, you know, Antonio Brown, all the recent great receivers that we've seen Scene because he's just got an ability to catch the ball and get yards after the catch. And that one-hander yesterday, that that's one of the best catches by a Titans receiver that I can remember. You know, the closest thing I can get to it, Nate, Nate Washington had an incredible reaching over the back of a defender uh, for a long ball uh, against the Detroit Lions. And But, but right now, A.J. Brown is absolutely creating his own path as himself as a receiver in this league. 
What I liked about A.J. Brown yesterday, uh, guys, is the fact that he shook off, you know, a, a, a not-so-great stretch of games, you know, where he was dropping passes. He had two fumbles uh, in the game against the Browns. Um, you know, he looked determined on Sunday that he was going to have a solid game. And, you know, I think you can make some comparisons to – by the way, it's Terrell Owens, not Terrell. It's Terrell Davis, Terrell Owens. Fair just, enough. Just for, just for, just for broadcaster. Yes. That's, a, that's uh, this is my broadcaster voice, by the way. Um, you know, in terms of attacking the football while it's in the air, catching everything with your hands. And, you know, Terrell was – he would – you know, he, he would drop a few passes every now and then. But what I like about – what I always liked about Terrell Owens and what I really like and admire about A.J. Brown, once he gets the ball in hand, he becomes a running back. He's looking to juke people and or run people over. He's not – a lot of receivers are content, hey, I made the catch. I'm going to sit down here. I'm going to avoid the hit. We got the first down. You know, let's move on. This guy is looking to score every time he gets the ball in hand. And I think, you know, Julio Jones has that knack. Terrell Owens always had that knack. Um, Odell Beckham Jr., when healthy, has that knack. And those, that's what I always like to see from a receiver. It's like, all right, you made the catch. What else you got? What else can you do? How can you make a big play even bigger? And A.J. Brown just, you know, once he gets the ball in his hands, he looks like a running back. He's kind of built like a running back. And, you know, he, I know he didn't clock a huge, you know, uh, eye-popping time at the combine, but he's got that field speed, man. Once he gets a, a step on you, you're not going to catch him from behind. And, you know, he's, he's another humble team first guy, but you can tell he's playing with a lot of confidence. And I think he was determined to really have a solid game after a couple of subpar games in previous weeks, you know, with some drops and, and some fumbles. Well, I think Tannehill makes all the difference in the world when it comes to that because the, the drops have not uh, dissuaded him from going away from A.J. Brown. They targeted him nine times yesterday. And, again, that's not uh, – Vrabel didn't act like that was intentional. He said the quarterback can throw to whomever the quarterback wants to throw to. And Ryan Tannehill threw at A.J. Brown nine times. He caught seven of them. He had 112 yards in that crazy 37-yard flea flicker catch. The He – he represents to me what at least, and again, recency bias is, is kind of the theme here today, but I've seen enough bad Titans wide receivers in five years to know that this is the thing that they have been so desperately searching for, what Corey Davis was hoped to have been and what makes Corey Davis so much better with them as a tandem is A.J. Brown. And ultimately – when you have two guys like that that you can feed off from game to game and who, if the defense takes away one, you have the option to go to the other. And we talked about this on the third Thursday podcast with uh, Derek Mason, our good friend, uh, that Corey Davis can dismantle you in those spots. And A.J. Brown is the game breaker. He is wide receiver A number one. With, with just kind of looking forward because – now they have Detroit. We don't know at this point, as we tape this at 3.05 on a Monday, whether Matt Stafford's going to play. He got hurt. Not going to matter. Yeah, not going to matter, apparently. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible Lions team, unfortunately, lo, no longer coached by future Titans defensive coordinator Matt Patricia uh, right. for the sake of the Titans. If understanding that they have three more games that they have to figure out, two, one of them in the division and two that matter based on tiebreakers with the Colts, as they try to win that first division for the first time since 2008. What, who would you guys rather face if the playoffs ended today, understanding what the matchups are? You get Indianapolis a third time, or you get to see the Cleveland Browns a second time. Teresa, what do you think? 
I don't think it matters as much as, uh, as how they're playing. I mean, we saw them go into Cleveland a year ago. Yes, different coach, different schemes. I know that. But, uh, you know, it did – this Titans team didn't show up in that first half. So if it's Cleveland coming here, I take my chances with the Titans and Mike Vrabel getting them ready. You, and it, maybe they even have Dory Jackson back at that point. Uh, a lot but, of people, know, Teresa. Don't lie to people. I know, I know. We're, we're still – he's on IR? No, I'm kidding. Um, but that's the thing. They're coming back in. What we've seen Mike Vrabel do is they are able to get ready for a team. And they looked at what the Browns they've, – they've seen – you know, the Browns tipped their hand on how they can attack them, right? So I would expect a better defensive approach and a better offensive start. I mean, they were moving down the field, and then the Titans were their own worst – enemy in that first half. Uh, same with the Colts. You know, they shot themselves in the foot, literally with the shank and then the block punt in that third quarter against the Colts here. Uh, and then they went up to Indianapolis, a place where they have literally had no hope over the last couple of decades. And they've now won two straight in Indianapolis against that team. So uh, considering that it's about you know, three quarters in two games against those two opponents that cost them wins in Nashville. I don't have a problem if they're hosting the Colts or the Browns because that's a game that the Titans should be able to, you know, be prepared for and play the best. It's going to be, I know it's a cliche, uh, and, and I hate hearing them myself, but it's how they play. The Titans have the talent to absolutely beat both of them, no matter how their defense has been playing this entire season. I don't know if they got the talent on defense. Go ahead, JB. They beat yeah, just – this you, is an Buck. offensive with, team. This with, is all a, due, with all due respect to the great Hall of Famer, Teresa Walker, what they did in Jacksonville did not alleviate my concerns oh. about this defense. You guys both know I've been on this defense hard all season long. I don't like their inability to put pressure on the quarterback. I don't like their inability to get off the field on third down. This will not be, you know, Mike Glennon and Gardner Menchu coming into Nissan Stadium. It'll either be Baker Mayfield or Phillip Rivers, who both lit you up in, the, in your own stadium earlier this season. So uh, if I had to choose one, you know, if you're making me choose one, I guess I would say the Browns. But I just, you know, this defense, they played pretty well on Sunday in Jacksonville. But I, I think you got to consider who they're playing. This is an offense, Teresa, you're right, that can score with anybody. They're, they're, they are a lock for 30 points most weeks. But I just – I have major concerns about this defense, and it may not matter because, you know, the further you go in the playoffs, the better the quarterbacks you're going to be playing. And, you know, right now as I sit, um, you know, I don't trust this defense. I flat out don't trust it. But if I had a choice, I'd probably say I would prefer to play the Cleveland Browns a second time. This is not a defensive team with by any stroke of any imagination. Uh, all they need to get out of them is a couple of plays here or there, maybe a turnover. And, uh, you know, here's the one thing. We haven't seen a ton of blitzing from them. So it's like I, I just feel that that's in the back pocket. You know, use it when you need it. And But this offense is going to have to outscore anybody. How far they go in the postseason, it'll be, you know, the offense cannot have a glitch where they have a turnover and stop themselves. They have to go out and, and, and win the games, which is really, really tough to say, having covered this team since they moved to the state, because it just, it just seems so counterintuitive for the Tennessee Titans. See, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking that the, the Browns are a worse matchup for them based on 
what the Colts have going on on the offensive line and the Titans' inability to get pressure. Like uh, Quentin Nelson was playing left tackle there for a hot second against the Las Vegas Raiders, and it didn't matter because the Raiders stink, and I tweeted out a, uh, a video of Vic Beasley getting his ass absolutely smacked by a wide receiver, 150-pound wide receiver, uh, just absolutely decking him, which I'm sure gave Titans fans great enjoyment. But the Browns, I mean, the Browns just pushed, it caved their heads in, caved their heads in up front. And that's that that uh, the identity of the team. And I think Baker Mayfield is not very good. Like, I, I still, I don't care how good he looked against the Tennessee Titans, I still believe him to be a bit fraudulent. And I, but I think when you have a unit like that up front, much like when the Titans had one of the better offensive lines, if not the best offensive line in football that year with Marcus Mariota and Mike Malarkey and Terry Robisky as the coordinator, I think that does make all the difference in the world, especially when you have a defense that just can't for the life of them get pressure. Dory Jackson doesn't make a bit of difference to me if they can't, if they can't get home and these guys are being asked to cover. And honestly, based on some conversations that I had last night after the game, like I still think they're being asked to do too much on defense. Like I think that they, the, the, the play menu that they have in front of them, because there are so many diverse looks for the Tennessee Titans defensively. And I do think, Teresa, to your point, they still have a lot more that they're wanting to show. But I think that just because you practice something one time in training camp doesn't mean you can call it with full confidence in week 14 of the NFL regular season. And I feel like that's kind of what we're seeing on a regular basis, where they continue to tell us 14 or I guess 13 weeks in because we haven't technically talked to anybody lately about bad defense, um, right. where communication is still something that they cite. And I'm looking at this and saying, how could this possibly be so? Well, sometimes it's hard to communicate when all of these calls are being handed down because there's such a wide array that they have at their disposal. I understand Mike Vrabel's need for system continuity. That's the whole reason Shane Bowen's there. Uh, and Anthony Midget and guys like that who were brought in to help keep this thing going the way that Mike likes it. But I still think that there's a degree of it. When I watch them, they're still being asked to do too much. Uh, and I think that's working a little bit to their detriment. 71 players. Uh, they have played the most players that they've played since, what, back in the 90s uh, with Marshall Newhouse, the latest offensive tackle. And a bunch of those new faces have been on defense. So I just think it's the, the newness and all these guys rotating in. I mean, shoot, Desmond King was a charger at the beginning of October. Uh, Breon Borders, who's now on IR, you know, he was a guy, this is his eighth different team. So some of this is guys coming in, trying to get them up to speed and having to keep it ABC simple with them. Them. And yeah, not being able to tap into that playbook because they hadn't repped it. You know, you're at a point of the season where you're, you're getting ready for this week's game. You're not getting ready for stuff you went, may have gone over in August. And, and I'll go back to this. If we, if Adoree Jackson, and I understand it's a massive if at this point, if, you know, it feels like they're trying to get him ready for the time that matters. Uh, it, we saw it last year. You know, we were wondering in December, is he going to come back? He was available for the playoffs, and we saw that defense seem to just kind of click into gear. Uh, now, that, that may not, you know, he may come back and that doesn't happen this year, but he gives them that, that piece in that secondary with Butler, Vaccaro, Bayard. Those guys know each other. And by that point, Desmond King will be more familiar, and maybe you get a Christian Fulton back, but you're going to – you hopefully get some pieces back which will allow you to – 
somewhat improve. And, you know, they have been improving in recent weeks on third down. Uh, not great. They're still giving up too many plays. And the Browns totally burnt them a week ago. But it, they don't have to make massive steps at this point. They just have to be, you know, some incremental improvement that should be possible with some people returning. My flags still go up, though, uh, when you hear somebody like Kevin Byard, who's you know, a pro bowler and all pro, one of the highest paid players at his position in the NFL and a, and a good guy and an honest guy still say this part of the season, we're having communication problems. That is a major flag up for me. Nunes, J JB, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, they know what they're doing, but trying to make sure these new guys have it on point, I think that's part of the big issue here. I think there's something else going on with Kevin Byard. Like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't add him. Yeah. Just, he just doesn't look like himself. Does he? It doesn't, it doesn't add up there to me. And I think there's a little bit, cause we, we talked to Vrabel about this before and I can't remember after which game, which it does nobody any good for me to be citing quotes that I can't put a, put a finger on. <laughs> but Vrabel was asked about like safety rotation and essentially said, yeah, it'd be great if we could rotate them uh, a little more, but at the, at the expense of who? And I mean, Byard, out of the three of them, if you're talking Vaccaro, Amani Hooker, and and uh, number 31, there is more inconsistency with the performances of Kevin Byard than the other two that we're talking about. And I just I can't I can't help but continue to focus on that when Kevin Byard looks like the least consistent member of the secondary just on a season wide season long at this point through 13 weeks of the uh, of the regular season. It's just something that doesn't make sense. Before we get out of here, because you guys have been gracious with your time, uh, Tennessee smacked Vanderbilt down on Saturday. It was very disappointing for me. I was actively rooting against the balls because who doesn't like a coaching search? And we may not be Shut deprived. Up. <laughs> Shut up, she said. <laughs> Teresa, I understand you work very hard, but I, I, I'm only doing this for the ability to use funny gifts on the internet. And they didn't lose, and it deprived me of my favorite, one of my favorites, those two overweight, corn-fed Vols fans looking very, very distressed that it's the only tweet I do during Vols games that it's only when they lose. And I was hoping Sarah Fuller would start the Jeremy Pruitt death spiral or maybe complete it, depending <laughs> on how it went down. But no, I just couldn't have anything that I wanted over the sports weekend. Of course, getting dragged about Derrick Henry, Teresa coming on this podcast and calling me old. Or saying that I look like hell, and now everything that's happening with Vanderbilt and Tennessee, and yet there will be at least one new coach uh, for the uh, for the universities that played on Saturday. It is being discussed that Clark Lee, the defensive coordinator for Notre Dame, who is uh, formerly of Vanderbilt, he will be the hire as we tape this. It has not yet been announced, but that is where all things are trending. Does it matter to either of you? It matters because, uh, you know, the thing that matters to me most is not so much who the coach is, but the fact that I had a conversation, as, as many in town did last week, with the new chancellor and the AD, and the new chancellor, you know, that sounds like they're ready to spend money. 
We know Vanderbilt has money. You drive down West End, you can see the money being spent everywhere on that campus with the exception of athletics. And, you know, the chancellor made clear when I talked with him last Wednesday that they're ready to tap their resources. Their endowment, last I checked, was over $6 billion. Okay. Uh, you see the SEC contract, the money's coming in. I mean, they're about to go from what, $55 million a year contract to three hundred million dollars uh they've got money and they want this new coach to help them spend it you know clark lee the notre dame uh defensive coordinator he's a guy who's been around a program that's got a lot of the bells and whistles you know he's been you know at different schools and seen how things have worked and he's a nashville native and a guy who was fullback on a team with jay cutler back in the early 2000s when you know you may have been in grade school then but uh you know so this is a guy who knows nashville he's went to mba you know he knows what this town is like like, and he knows Vanderbilt, but he also, you know, he'll have this say on how they spend the money. And yes, I understand the skepticism. I've seen many a plan announced that had no follow through. Uh, but at this point, you know, the, the fact that Vandy wants to spend money, you know, that's the biggest key to me rather than who their coach is. Well, listen, as far as what the chancellor said and all that, count me among the skeptics. I'll believe it when I see it, but uh, hopefully that will be the case. As far as Clark Lee goes, yeah, I agree with Teresa Walker. I think it's a, it's a terrific fit. Nashville native, like you said, understands what goes on, knows how the sausage is made at Vanderbilt, what you're going to be up against from day one and how you overcome it. And I'm glad that, you know, Candace Story Lee, the AD, didn't, you know, back herself into a corner and say, well, I said publicly I wanted an offensive coach. And that's only who I'm going to hire. So, um, yeah, I feel good about the hire from that standpoint. We'll wait and see what the chancellor does, and we'll wait and see if they actually spend some money and really, really invest in uh, the football program up there because it's been long overdue. But I, I like the hire, assuming that uh, all the reports are true and, and Clark Lee will be the guy. Jay Cutler, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. Jay Cutler's freshman year was 2002. I would have been nine years old, Teresa. So elementary school, I was right on point. I did rough math in my head, which is always dangerous for a journalist. <laughs> I, uh, you have both been on point, disrespectful though this conversation may have been. John Burton of <laughs> News Channel 5. You can also check out his radio show on, uh, on Nash Sports Radio with Greg Pogue and, uh, and listen to him on a regular basis Monday through and Friday. Every Monday at 1025, the great Teresa Walker joins us. So. You there can you double up there. If the disrespect <laughs> on this podcast with JB and T was not enough, you can get it at 1025 on Mondays on Nash Sports Radio, John Burton's radio show. And, of course, they react to the games on News Channel 5. Steve Lehman, Jonathan Hutton, our friend from the Midday 180, on the, uh, on the television, wherever it is that you uh, get News Channel 5. Teresa Walker, of course, you can read her. Hall of Fame, esteemed journalist for the Associated Press. Uh, and disrespectful though she may be, uh, grateful for both of your time here. Not let that go, T. He's not. No, I'm, that go. I'm, I'm legitimately angry. Like I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go do a face mask after this, Teresa, because you really, really pissed me off. It's a. <laughs>
Zoom lines around here. It's not too late to get your holiday shopping done. It's not too late to give the gift of better scent this uh, this holiday season. I'm watching currently. I'm a little bit distracted. I'm watching currently Baker Mayfield just get smacked around by the Baltimore Ravens as we're taping this in the fourth quarter of Monday Night Football. And the Browns stink right now. You know what you could do for the Browns if you were in a giving mood? If you were in a sympathetic mood, you could send them a beast box and you could save 20% off your online order at GetBeast.com using the promo code BEAST2020. Great products, great personal care and grooming products like things that I have here on my desk. I've got my Beast Beard Brush. I've got my Hard Hair Clay, my Yop Hand Wash, my Beast Beard Oil, all of these things. You can get a customized Beast Box or, if you're so inclined... You can combine a variety of their products into your own customized Beast Box. They do it all for you at Tame the Beast. They want you to groom boldly. They want you to smell better. They want you to give it to somebody else. They want you to give the gift of better scent this holiday season. They want you to save 20% off using that promo code BEAST2020. It's at GetBeast.com. Back here, 615 Sessions podcast on the GetBeast.com Zoom line. Chris Blair of the Listening Room Cafe is kind enough to stop by on today's show. Now, what the people listening at home do not know, Chris, is that you and I have already had this conversation before, but my incompetence has caused us to reunite. But I'm very happy to see you regardless. Thanks for hanging out. Same to you, man. (laughs) So Chris is here on behalf of the Listening Room and a, a, a movement that our friends at Two Rivers Ford have put into place to try and keep places like the listening room on their feet and with their, uh, with, with their support of the community through the Drive the Music Nashville initiative. It's something that I am very happy to have helped participate in. If you do not know anything about this, then I have done a poor job. But you know that you can go to drivethemusicnashville.com. You can get one of these t-shirts and you can purchase uh, a t-shirt that would be the cost of going to one of these venues to help keep local independent music going in Nashville. And Chris is here to kind of inform people about what it's been like to operate one of these local independent music venues in the midst of a pandemic. Chris, if we could if we could lay out for the people just kind of what it's been like for you guys the last nine months as you try and navigate through what is very, very difficult times to navigate through. Yeah, Buck, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, you know, just, uh, I think everybody feels it, right? But, um, you know, March 14th was our last day that we were open. Um, and, uh, you, you know, back then it was like, all right, well, we're going to have a two-week vacation. You know, we got a quarantine, not sure what this is, you know, all that. And then, um, you know, as, as you know, that, that, that turned into months and months and months. And it's... Um, you know, the music industry was, you know, the first ones to really get hit the hardest. And I think there were going to be, you know, the, the last industry really to, to come back fully. Um, so you've got, you know, thousands of independent music venues across the country. And there's 15 of us just here in, in Nashville. Um, you know, and it's, it's where all of the big artists that that everybody knows from radio um you go back and talk to any of them they got their start in a small independent venue right so 
you know, it's just the uh, not having the crystal ball of when this goes away. And, um, you know, our, our rent doesn't go away. Our utilities don't go away. Um, we've got, you know, we've got staff that, um, you know, key staff that we, you know, have tried to keep on. Uh, and then at the same time, we've got, you know, um, servers and, and bartenders and cooks and, you know, all of this that, you know, they're family and uh, they've worked for us for a long time. And, um, you know, when we're not open or we're not open in full capacity, you know, everybody's struggling. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been really tough, to say the least. And and so much so much so many different angles to approach with this, because what you're talking about is so many different. So it's so interconnected. It's such a wide web of people that go into uh, a, a, a music event being hosted at a place like the listening room because you don't you don't necessarily think top of mind. OK, well, it's not just about the band. It's about the people that travel with the band. It's about the, the support staff in the listening room. It's about the people who make sure that there are food, drinks, serving staff, all of these things that just completely fall by the wayside as this thing has, has you know, continued now for the better part of 2020. And thank God we're in the last month of this thing so we can finally, at least, at least with some kind of hopefulness, look, for, look towards the future and, uh, and do away with all things 2020. I think everybody would be happy to do so at this point but you guys have you guys have obviously you've been open for quite some time since you moved downtown in 2008 but you started out in franklin in 2006 what how how different is your job today and obviously it's probably become much different over the course of the last nine months but how much different is your job and your day-to-day operations at the listening room today as it was when you started and what have you had to learn how to adapt and, and improve on as you guys have tried to navigate through this thing? Um, well, gosh, you know, how my job is different. Uh, you know, Buck, when we first moved to, to downtown, you know, coming station, you remember that place. Um, you know, I was the uh, dishwasher. I was, <laughs> I was the bartender. I literally would uh, be behind the bar and I would take somebody's drink order and food order. And then I would run back into the kitchen to flip a burger and then, I mean, I was, I was doing it all back then. So, um, yeah, my, uh, you know, as far as like what I do, um, you know, that's, that's changed as we've, as, as we've grown and I've got fantastic staff, but yeah, through, um, you know, kind of through this last, uh, you know, eight, nine months, um, it, it's really the uncertainty, you know, what, what I do on a daily basis is, manage the numbers, work with the artists, um, work with booking agents, um, you know, and when, when we don't, we don't know from literally week to week, how many seats we're going to be able to have in the, in the venue, you know, it's, it's impossible to, uh, you know, to plan. And that's, I think that's the biggest frustration for me is, you know, something that I've become, pretty good at it in running the business. Um, you know, uh, we've got, you know, on a, a pre COVID, um, we would have 300 people in the venue, um, for two shows a night, six days a week. Um, you know, when we, we were closed down and then we got to re- reopen, but it was, you know, like 25% capacity and, you know, then it was 50% capacity, but nobody could sit at the bar and, 
Um, and that 50% capacity, you've still got to have tables that are six feet apart. So it's not really 50% capacity, you know, and now it's 50% capacity, but no more than a hundred people. So literally that's, that's, that's how things have changed for me is that I've got to, I've just got to navigate this. And it's also, you know, it's, it's very hard to get, um, the information a lot of times, um, and it's confusing and, um, you know, just trying to figure out, um, you know, how to, how to keep things going, um, how to, how to staff the right way. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, new year's Eve coming up, you know, we usually do something big on new year's Eve and it's like, well, I mean, do we even have a show? We're going to, um, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be open late. Number one, cause we can't, the rules won't allow us to, but you know, even if we could, it's like, it just, we're trying to also be responsible. So it's that fine line of, um, we have to pay the bills. And if things don't turn around and things don't get better for all of us, independent venues, um, very quickly, we are, we are very quickly running out of, of money. And that's just the, the truth of it. You've already got venues across the country, iconic venues that have closed their doors for good. And, um, it's, it's really sad. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, um, that's, that's the biggest thing for me is just the, the uncertainty and, and, you know, figuring out how to manage something that you have no control over. The way that the rules change week to week, it, the, the, the planning aspect of it is something that goes so, so unnoticed for people like me who just go and attend or under normal circumstances, go and attend uh, a concert at a, at a, at a music venue, at, but everything that goes into it, how, how you have to continually adapt over the course of this thing has to be absolutely insane. And if you of course want to help Chris and the listening room cafe and the 14 other music venues that are in the music venue Alliance of Nashville, drive the music, Nashville.com. I want to talk though, cause at last, the first time we had this conversation, I was trying to learn, okay, what, what could I have done better to make it not so, not so, not so depressing about the state of local music <laughs> here in Nashville. And I, and I thought to myself, okay, what I messed up on is I didn't ask you, Chris, about how, how it was that you came to decide that you wanted to be in the business of music after starting as a, uh, as a singer songwriter it, here in middle Tennessee, and then transitioning into one of the most successful independent music venues here in Nashville. So I wanted to get more background from you on the listening room on your story and how that all came to be. So if you could kind of start from the jump and just kind of give people a little idea of your story cuz it's not it's not unco- it's not common but there are so many stories like that I feel like here in Nashville that kind of weave the weave the tapestry of what it is what makes us music city. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I think I think you're right. I think um, you know the being a part of Mvan Music Venue Alliance Nashville, as you said. Um, the, every every single member uh, of our group, every single venue, um, you know, they all have a, a a story, and I think that's what makes all of us uh, here in Nashville so unique and and. Um, different than other places around the the world really is because Nashville is just such a big music city. Um, And I think more people are starting to figure this out that it's not 
country music. Um, we at the listening room do a lot of country music, but that's because we're a writer's venue and obviously a lot of, a lot of country music gets written in Nashville. Um, but, uh, you know, it's such a, it's such a great, um, place for music in general, all, all genres. And, and all of us, I think have that tie to it. So my story, um, I started singing when I was six years old. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's in my blood. It's all I've ever done is, is music. Um, you know, I played sports. I've always been a, um, a, a sports lover. Um, I, I'm, I still am. I'm a, a season ticket holder for the Titans and, you know, I just, I, I, I love that, but music was always in my blood. Um, I, uh, I put three songs out to radio, 98, 99, um, did the tour, um, you know, had some, some very minor success, uh, and through that I wrote songs, but I never co-wrote songs. Didn't, I didn't understand what co-writing was. So for the listeners out there uh, that may not know that it's basically what it sounds like. You go in a room and you, you write with other people. So when I first moved to Nashville, um, I had a, a, a label, uh, the, the old uh, Disney label, Lyric Street Records, um, uh, guy's still a, a dear friend and mentor, Doug Howard, uh, was, was running that over there. And um, he brought me to Nashville. We started working together. He, he started, you know, pushing me to write with other people. So basically that's how the listening room got started. I started getting in a room, um, figuring out what co-writing was all about, fell in love with chasing lyrics and writing songs. Uh, and then at the same time, Buck, I realized that, um, you know, back where I'm from in St. Louis, I, uh, I thought I was pretty awesome, you know, uh, opening up for every major label act that came through. And then I moved right. to Nashville and I was like, oh man, there's a <laughs> lot of good people here. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I have, I have the gift and the curse, I guess, of a, of a, a great ear and, uh, quickly realized that, um, I was, I was good. Uh, but I wasn't great in a world of greatness in Nashville. So same time I was falling in love with the writing of, of songs. I was also living in a 12 passenger van with my band traveling all over playing in, in, in crappy places and crappy hotels or motels that we're sleeping in. And, um, you know, I was like, Hey, you know what? I, I, uh, I like this side of the business better. <laughs> and, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happened. And then I started playing around town at different writers rooms and, um, you know, felt like <clears throat> I wanted to create something that had incredible sound. Um, felt like you were just sitting at home with, you know, your friends and in, in, in the family room. So I teamed up with Bose and we've got uh sponsorship with Bose. And, and um, so the, the sound quality is always top notch, but I think the thing for me is that, I've, I've lived on both sides of the, of the coin. So, you know, it, it, the artists um, and the songwriters, you know, it's not, um, they are a part of my business. They're a, they're the part of my business, right? That's why people come. Um, but to me, it's not, it, it, it's, it's more of the, like their family. So, uh, you know, I, I know what they're going through. I know how hard it is to, to be a writer and, um, you know, not get cuts. Uh, I know what it's like to be uh, a new artist living 
you know, living in a van. So, um, for me, that was, you know, I think that was the, the difference is, um, you know, just trying to build something that, um, you know, was just cool. And uh, it's been fun, 15 years. No doubt, successful and cool and, and communal, right? You want to, you want to yeah. let, allow the audience to feel like they're part of that creative process, which is one of the things that I love so much about going to see a show at the listening room, but there's a there's a variety of th different things that you said that I want to hit on. Um, that I th because first and foremost, writing is something that I do on a regular basis. But there's there's very different kinds of writing that we're talking about. I can pump out whatever trash I'm going to pump out about the Tennessee Titans, and I you know because I work on the internet, it gets published, and I I I suffer while I write. But it is not there's not that fear of rejection in a way. <laughs> that people in the music industry have the the and maybe I shouldn't call it a suffering even though I think writing of the things that at least from my perspective that I do is the thing that is most time consuming that provokes the most thought that requires the most de attention to detail from from your perspective having been through this and seeing so many different artists and groups go through this what, how, how can you, I guess, how can you kind of relate to the audience? What exactly goes into the creative process of coming up with a good song? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's really like therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I joke around that you don't, you don't really meet a lot of unhappy songwriters um, because <laughs> we get to go in a room every day and, if we're on a high, we talk about it and we write about it. If there's something going on, COVID, if, you know, whatever, things at home, you know, life in general, we talk about it. And that's where some of the best songs come, uh, come from. So, you know, the process I think is different for everybody. Um, you know, some people, some writers that I go in a room with are great lyricists and, uh, you know, some are great guitar players that, um, you know, have the perfect riff, um, you know, or the, or the great melody, um, the cool chords that a lot of people don't know and, you know, things like that. So I think <clears throat> that's what's fun about getting in a room with so many different people is you find out who you, who you blend with, you know, um, you know, two guys that are great lyricists in a room that, that don't play guitar or, or keyboards very well, probably aren't going to come up with that killer number one song. Um, you get that mix right. And that's where you start to see these pockets of teams that, you know, are all of a sudden you've got, you know, these same writers on the, on a handful of the top 10 songs all the time. Cause it's just, you know, they, it works, but, you know, I think, um, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, going in and, and you start talking about ideas. And, um, I think the other thing that, that writers have, and I'm sure you do, you do too, is, you know, you're always listening. So, you know, when you're not, even when you're not thinking about writing for your show or for a song, your ears are always open. And, you know, I might be sitting at a restaurant with my wife and I hear somebody at the table behind me just say something that I'm like, what, what did they say? And I get my phone out and I write down this little, like, well, that's, that's a song. Thank you. You know, and so, um, you know, it's things like that, but it's, uh, yeah, it's different for everybody. For sure. I, I, I will try to think the next time I write an article about a backup running back, I'll try to think of it as therapeutic. 
rather than whatever else, whatever else, uh, whatever other obscenities are running through my head at the time. With with your with your background and how you came to decide that the business aspect of it was probably the place that you wanted to spend more of your time. Uh, so many people, at least in the music industry, have have had similar experiences when they're where they're living multiple people in a van and traveling across the country and playing at small venues. What what is the what's the what's the best venue that you've played at first? We'll give people the feel good on the front end. Then what's the worst venue that you've played in? Because I know you got both. Gosh, that's tough. Um, man, probably the. Probably the best that comes to mind. I don't even think it's there anymore. But there was this uh, there was this club outside of uh, outside of St. It was a smaller club. Um, I you know I've played a bunch of fairs with you know fifteen twenty thousand people and stuff like that. And those are all cool, really good experiences. But I think the uh, probably the 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 funnest um, best memory for me is this club that was outside of St. Louis called. Um, little bit of Texas and then it changed its name to in cahoots. Um, and I actually think it's a church now, maybe, or a furniture. I think it was a furniture store and now it's a church, but the music was, was so crazy. good. It turned it into a religious. Yeah, experience. yeah exactly. Right. That, um, just because it was close to my hometown where I grew up, it was when, um, I had some songs that were, that were on the, on the charts on radio. Um, you know, and there were just so many people. I, I think this club had like maybe 5,000 people in it or something like that. Uh, but there were so many people out there that, you know, my family and friends, and that was just really cool to to be able to play a, a, a show like that and just look out at the crowd and just have so many people you knew. So sure. that was probably the the best one. And man, the, the, the worst, um, gosh, I mean, there... I don't even remember the names of some of these places. But, you, know, just, you just remember the feeling. <laughs> yeah. You know, we'd, it'd be like fair to fair. Yeah. Right. Or I was, I did back then I did a lot of, uh, weirdly, I did a lot of Walmart grand openings. Um, okay. It was interesting, but you know, it'd be like these bigger shows and then you'd figure out the routing and go, okay, well, to, to pay to get to there, there's this podunk town right in the middle um, that looks like it's got a pretty good, good bar. So, um, you know, I used to, uh, I used to act as my own booking, <laughs> booking manager too. And I would call them and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd use a different name and, you know, say, Hey, oh, really? this is, this is so-and-so. And I, you know, I manage, I manage Chris Blair and, um, he's coming through town and, you know, it'd be great, you know, and I'd try to sell it that way. Those would be the worst, you know, I should have never done that. It was, and we would, we would show up and it was like, I mean, it, the, the places, some of these places we walked into weren't really even big enough for the band to go in, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, you got the, the, everybody's coming up and say, Hey, can you turn it down? Cause you're in a, you're in a place that holds 20 people. It's like, people are eating lunch and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, but hey, we got paid and it got us to the next gig, so. No question, it's all about the journey. And that's what we're trying to do with the Drive the Music Nashville initiative. We're trying to keep the journey going for so many uh, artists who have similar stories like Chris Blair at the Listening Room Cafe, the Music Venue Alliance in Nashville. There's 15 local independent music venues 
that are involved. You go to drivethemusicnashville.com, you purchase a t-shirt, and if you want to go see a show, they're being hugely responsible. They're, they're practicing safe and social distancing protocols. The listeningroomcafe.com, they got their schedule of events. They've got a bunch of different things going on. They've got great food and drinks. If you want to go see uh, Josh Kerr and friends, that's one of my favorite acts to see at the Listening Room Cafe. They put on a great show, and they make sure that everybody there is having a good time and a part of the communal vibe that the, that the Listening Room is designed to give off. Chris, I really appreciate you doing this not once but twice for the people, but I do, I do think it's, the, uh, it's very important that we got together again and, and talk to people about this, and I really appreciate you hanging out here on the 615 Sessions. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate you, uh, everything you're doing as well, and uh, I, you're, you're sporting the shirt today, so you appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I just encourage everybody to go check it out, drivethemusicnashville.com, get a shirt, donate, help all of us independent venues. We, we really appreciate it. Shouts to Teresa Walker, to John Burton, and to Chris for hanging out with us on the podcast. A full episode, a fun episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Remember that we will be back with you on Thursday. Not sure who the guest will be, but I know that it's going to be a great conversation no matter whom is on the podcast. And remember that if you are in the giving mood, uh, not only... Can you support the people that support this show, that make the 615 Sessions free for you, Two Rivers, and Tame the Beast? But you can also go ahead and leave us five stars in the Apple Podcast iTunes area. You can leave a review. That helps our metrics. It helps our numbers. We would greatly appreciate you doing so, just as uh, Baker Mayfield appreciates Hollywood Higgins. He just caught a touchdown. We're recording this in the waning moments of Monday Night Football so that you can get this podcast first thing in the morning in your feed. Remember, though, as always, to stay safe, stay clean, and Nashville, you got to stay hot, even as cold as it gets. This has been the award-winning 615 Sessions podcast. It's powered by Two Rivers Ford. It's brought to you, as always, by A to Z Sports and A to Z Sports Nashville.com. Nashville.com.